thanks for joining us today for the PSU's Pandemic Podcast. My name is Sarah Siddiqui. I'm a Supported Return to Training Fellow based in the Professional Support Unit in London. In these podcasts, we'll be covering different themes around training and supervision, career concerns, well-being and difficult communications during the pandemic. Today's episode of PSU's Pandemic Podcast is on remote supervision in primary care and it's brought to you by our multi-faculty development team. education was put on hold and of course GP education was put on hold just like it is for all the other specialties and like it was for the GP trainees who are in hospital posts at the moment rather than their 18 to 20 months of GP. Normally with supervision we're used to discussing cases pretty much on a regular basis. A lot of people had to overnight go to 100% telephone first system which was new for so many people. I think it was always really difficult to go from a predominantly face-to-face specialty. Obviously, we have a different uh, level of tech skills amongst the patient population, but also the worker level as well. I think the biggest challenge was the sudden overnight move to 24-7 mm-hmm. telephone consulting. Mm-hmm. And how do you teach in that mechanism? You know, when so many educators and trainers you know, were learning themselves, how do you teach within that? The other thing that I have personally found challenging over the last few weeks is the number of calls we're having regarding mental health. Hello, my name's Helen Foster. I'm a member of the PDT at HEE, supporting GP training and supervision. I'm also supporting the NHS Nightingale faculty in training of staff. So with me today as guest speakers are Dr John Spicer, he's a GP in Croydon and John has taught in classrooms and workplaces for many years, mainly primary care and clinical ethics. Hello Helen, very nice to be here this afternoon. Rupal Shah, an Associate Dean for PDT with HEE and a practising GP and supervisor for GP trainees. Hi Helen, lovely to see you today. Nerja Joshi, GPST3 and St George's GP trainee representative. Nerja is actually supervised by Rue. Thanks for having me today, Helen. We are dealing with a very different situation in practice as a result of COVID-19 and ways of working within general practice and primary care have changed as a result. For yourself, Nerja, what feelings and experiences have you had working remotely? Helen, when this first started, I remember saying to my trainer that I felt incredibly confident and happy to start remote working because it was what was necessary and the situation dictated that remote working should start. And being ready to sit my CSA the following week, I thought that I was in a good position to start remote working and I felt confident to do so. I was excited for the challenge. However, it has brought up some issues, but only I'm sure that other GP trainees and GPs and GP partners are also facing in that the problems that patients are presenting with can sometimes be dealt with over the phone or via video consult, but other times less suitable to be dealt with over the phone. 
and that presents its set of challenges. So remote working was set up very quickly at our practice and I'm very grateful for that and the technology was very good so I didn't really have any trouble there. I know that hasn't been the case for all trainees. We work from one telephone triage list which is helpful because you can see what other people are doing and when I need help I'm able to access it via my trainer or whoever's on call. So I think the problems I'm experiencing are not exclusive to trainees but actually being felt by the wider GP community. Interesting what Nerdy just mentioned, John, in regards of some, some of the concerns and regarding moral distress. Yeah, um, thank you, Helen. Moral distress is an interesting one. I mean, obviously, working in current circumstances is stressful in itself, and probably more so than ordinarily day-to-day general practice and general practice learning. Moral distress is something which the nursing literature first talks about, and, and is specific as the gap between what a clinician may want to do and cannot do for all sorts of reasons, for reasons of resources, not enough workforce, the context, which of course is very complicated at the moment. And an example of that might be that a GP trainee who inevitably wants to do the best for his or her patient may not be able to do just that. So, for example, may not be able to work with the right kind of personal equipment that we hear so much about at the moment. It may not be available may not be able to get the right outcome in terms of treatment decisions actually operationalised for their own patients. And what is suggested by the literature around moral distress is that this causes a particular kind of distress, not just to learners, but to any clinician. And that's what it's all about, really. So, I mean, thinking about what John has linked in with, do yourself, Rue, have have you been having some of those experiences yourself? I think definitely that's the case, Helen. I would say as a clinician and also as a supervisor. So, for example, this situation has necessitated us having some very difficult conversations by telephone surrounding end-of-life care. It feels wrong to be having such conversations by telephone, although rationally I can understand that it's safer for the patient, apart from anything else, to have some degree of separation from us. However, asking the types of questions which we have needed to by telephone feels very uncomfortable. Also, there's the issue about home visits. I had a situation where a lady with dementia was very ill from COVID at home, and I was trying to manage this initially remotely, which which has all sorts of issues. So I think from the point of view of being a clinician, certainly there have been situations like that. And from the point of view of being a supervisor for Nearja, again, I'm aware that often we're not working in the same physical environment. So I might be working from home Um, and Nija might be at the practice or vice versa, which doesn't feel very comfortable often. Um, John's already mentioned PPE and the element of risk associated with the work that we're doing at the moment. So Nija, just linking to that, does that sort of match with your experience too as the trainee? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's always difficult not being in the same physical setting as your supervisor. I have had a personal experience that I don't think that I have any barrier to call my trainer if I was in trouble. And equally, we have a list of of GPs which we could call upon if we were in need. So I don't think there's ever been a trouble accessing the help. But what we often talk about is where do we meet the threshold to access the help? So from my point of view, if I was working from home and I had a clinical question, I would have to think, is this worth bringing up in the clinical meeting? 
Is it worth picking up the phone to speak to my trainer? Is it worth picking up the phone to speak to the on-call GP? Or is it worth writing a WhatsApp message? And it's about thinking of how do we reach that threshold when we're working alone. So yesterday was actually one of the first days that Dot Shara and I got to work together in the practice at the same time. And I'm sure she could also agree that during that day, we managed to actually have a lot more corridor conversations about the patients that we spoke to by virtue of the fact that she could hear what I was doing, she could see what I was doing, and we could pick up on much more minor issues, so things that wouldn't have met the threshold had I been working from home. So I I do think that there is a difference. So did you feel then that there was a slight change in your conscience in terms of what you were able to do? Did you recognise that difference having been with Rue yesterday? Yes, absolutely. There was certainly a difference yesterday and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that when I'm working from home, I feel unsupervised, but we're able to get a level of supervision when we're in the same building and things that perhaps wouldn't have met the threshold for me to pick up the phone and call her, we could still have discussions about. Some of it is even just about reassurance for myself, just a reassurance that did I do the right thing for my patient? As John was saying, this is how all doctors and trainees feel. We just want to do the best. So Sometimes it's good to have a reassuring voice to say, yes, you did the right thing. In terms of sort of linking that to the potentially new things and tasks or roles that come up because you are training, how have you managed to sort of deal with those elements that maybe sometimes you're not always comfortable in doing? We are quite lucky in that we always have GPs in the building. If there's anything I feel uncomfortable with, I would refer that to the GP in the building generally. If we feel really uncomfortable and want a second pair of eyes on, for example, a skin condition that we can't get if someone's working from home, we do ask for a second video call. And I think it's important that trainees feel empowered to ask for help if they need it or if they feel unsure. Because at this stage in training, ordinarily, it would be very right for them to be asking for a second opinion. There clearly are some quite challenging conversations over the phone. Rue, you touched upon it. And maybe you could discuss a little bit about those ethical issues that come up. So I think there are certain ethical decisions which have come into play during the pandemic, which we're not used to dealing with. For example, there's the issue about purpose. So if we're discussing end-of-life care, For example, whether someone wants to receive treatment in hospital, partly some of the thinking is to do with resources um, and safety of clinical staff, as well as purely being in the patient's best interest. And that feels different and it feels quite uncomfortable. So Nurja, just for yourself, in terms of ethical issues, how have you been your experiences as a trainee? So we have had to have a lot of discussions about advanced care planning, which has kind of become essentially very rushed because we've had to do it all of a sudden without very much warning and these are being done over the telephone which is not our normal way of working so it's added an extra dimension of the unknown to this however there are good resources out there about how to go about these conversations they're not always perfect but they can leave trainees feeling a bit drained and I know that one day I I did a couple of these conversations in one day and I felt absolutely exhausted by the end so it's really important that if trainees are having these conversations to remember that even if they're not finding them difficult as such they are taking a toll on your emotions and that can impact you later in the day or with other conversations that you have so it's really important to be aware and recognize when that's happening educational supervision is fundamental in developing trainees and yet we are negotiating our way through a very sort of new situation that covid 19's brought 
What do we mean by it during what you'd call normal circumstances or situations? Educational supervision is essentially a, a, a catch-all word to describe what the trainer, the teacher, the supervisor does with his or her learner. Now, the GMC, in their way, do divide it into a slightly more sophisticated set of skills. And the way they describe it is that educational supervision is the slightly standing back role of a trainer who will keep an eye on the progress of his or her trainee over time, in fact, over the whole program. But I guess what we're actually talking about here this afternoon is what the GMC calls clinical supervision, where the trainer and the trainee share their workplace. And the role of the supervisor is to help the trainee learn directly from the patients that they individually or together will see. So it's partially about monitoring the progress of the trainee, but it's more about actually getting the best learning you can from the experience of seeing patients in the workplace. And that workplace is usually the practice, but it could be the patient's home, it could be care homes where both trainer and trainee fulfill their clinical role together. So, Rue, would you have anything to add to John's comments? I think supervision has an element of mentorship. So there's certainly an element of personal support, as well as professional support, um, enhancing capability, ensuring trainees achieve their potential, that they're able to become prepared for independent practice. And there's also an element of assessment, uh, which is quite difficult to fit into our current way of working. Really, there are possibly some things missing within current context. Would, would you sort of agree? Yeah, and, and Neil just hinted at this already. There's that day-to-day -day connection between supervisor and trainee, which if the two of them are not working on the same site, that is all lost or potentially lost. The little conversations that happen over a cup of coffee or in the corridor, which come out of individual patient contacts, the team working, particularly with uh, interprofessional colleagues, has been disrupted by remote working. Be interesting to know, Nurja, about your actual experiences in terms of how supervision is working now that you're doing it remotely. I mean, it's certainly changed, and that's for a number of reasons, which, like we talked about, the physical distance, but also the type of work that we're doing makes it much more difficult to supervise. So, for example, it's very difficult to supervise a video consultation unless you're physically in the room with the other person. And equally, unless you're on a three-way call, it's very difficult to monitor an audio telephone consultation. So when we're physically in the building, at least Dr Shah has the benefit of hearing my side and can at least catch some of what's going on, which is better than what you get when you're working from home. And it does have an impact on supervision. And certainly assessments are no longer a priority. But I think... We touched on a really, really important element here, which is the personal mentorship aspect of supervision. And this pandemic is affecting people in all sorts of ways. And that's personal, professional, and people are experiencing all sorts of emotions. And that goes for trainers and trainees and everyone in between. It's really easy to lose some trainees if they're going through personal distress, if the trainer is not to ask the right and probing questions. Not all trainees might be forthcoming as to what emotions they're experiencing. So what I would urge is if trainers can try to keep some time aside every week to make sure that you do have some sort of formal tutorial time just to check in on the well-being of your trainees. It can so easily be lost if that personal face-to-face -face connection is also not there.
Absolutely. I mean, just sort of touching on those solutions and resources and possible ways forward, John, is there any sort of guidance regarding feedback, assessment, team bonding that we can put forward? I mean, I think in a way, Nurture has just described one of the best solutions, which is finding time to actually address the pastoral element that we've begun to talk about between teacher and learner. Perhaps something about trying to keep up the relationships within the team. And I'm aware that various WhatsApp groups have been started, which are not the solution to everything, but at least they are fast and enable the whole team to talk to one another in real time, as it were. I guess the trainer, something Ruth mentioned earlier, should be available in whichever technical modality works. And it could be the phone, it could be video, it could be in, in all sorts of different ways. So assessment is tricky at the moment for lots of reasons. Something that Nirja and I have thought about is perhaps to go through an entire telephone list, because as Nirja has already mentioned, uh, where is the threshold met at which you raise a problem with your supervisor? You might only want to discuss patients where there's been a particular difficulty, whereas in fact there may be some benefit in looking through an entire surgery, something which is harder to do at the moment links in with the idea of entrustable professional activities. So looking at the whole telephone surgery um, might be an idea to see the softer things, which wouldn't necessarily attract enough discomfort to raise to a supervisor, but uh, might be uncovered. What do you feel are the questions we should be asking the trainees at this time? Questions that would support us in identifying any issues or support that would be needed? Yes, I think Rather than just concentrating on the outcome, it is important to unpick the decision-making process. So there's lots of different paths which one could follow, and that's not the point. I think there's something about scrutinising the decision-making process to have that discussion about why did you choose to do what you did, what other options might have been available to you. So rather than just concentrating on was it safe, fine, tick, next, it may be richer educationally to think about um, the process. So Nerja, in terms of sort of team meetings and other meetings within practices, how are these being used to assist you um, within your supervision uh, as a trainee? As you can imagine, with all of the COVID guidance that was going around, a lot of the virtual team meetings become very COVID and guideline driven. And we have a lot of targets and new protocols which we need to talk about each day but it can become very easy for a trainee to not voice any of their clinical concerns and I realise there are a couple of questions that trainers can ask to help to bring out clinical concerns from the trainee and one was just asking well has anyone had any problems this morning and if a trainee doesn't feel ready to speak out it's quite interesting that when you see that trainers are going through the same or similar difficulties it normalises that it's okay for trainees to ask questions in virtual team meetings and actually they're not alone if they're having any difficulties. So that that was a really useful thing. And a colleague of mine was mentioning that the virtual team meetings are used to discuss any dermatology conditions or any children under 12 as they were seen as things that would be better with a consensus opinion. So that was another way of working which was interesting. I think there's definitely something about remembering that a clinical meeting, although it's an excellent idea and I very strongly encourage all practices to have a form of virtual meeting for it not to become entirely transactional. So if there's going to be learning, apart from learning around guidelines, as Nia just said, 
I think there has to be permission to discuss cases. And what Nia just says about modelling, I think is very pertinent. So perhaps as trainers, we should be prepared to share our own uncertainties so that trainees can see that we're all in the same boat to a large extent. I think that's absolutely right, Rune. If I can just add to that a little bit, I think what one's doing there is almost role modelling, to dignify it with that term, so that the common experience of the supervisor and the learner is actually validated in front of the team. And I think that's incredibly important because we are all in the same boat, whether we are just starting out in GP or whether we've, we've been doing it for a while. The, the other thing that occurs to me is this notion of sharing the decision making, that it's actually OK to phone a friend, as it were, whether you're teacher and learner or whether you're colleagues or whoever you are, even across the interprofessional divide. And it's probably more important now than it's ever been before to acknowledge and value that. John, there are obviously trainees who, even before COVID and this situation, were struggling and having difficulty with their training and supervisors were supporting them. But maybe there's new cases that have evolved due to this new concept of remote working, which I think has been picked up in how we're supporting them. How best can a supervisor support a trainee in difficulty, given this new way of working? You've just made a, a distinction there between trainees that the supervisor may know had been having difficulties or struggling beforehand and those to whom the actual idea of remote working is particularly difficult or stressful. And I would think they're probably two different problems. So the trainees in difficulty who had had those issues before, they might be difficulties of progression, that's to do with academic progression through the program through achieving their various learning objectives, getting the most out of the jobs that they've had. Those kind of trainees will probably be known to the supervisor and inevitably where this style of working is now almost normalised, the trainer's probably going to have to be even more aware of the potential for them to run into more trouble. Now it could be that the trainee is struggling because of pastoral or personal issues and will probably require more support of whatever type through this period of working. So more regular contact, more time. Perhaps if there's a worry about the safety of the trainee, then actually there may be a place for increasing the amount of assessment that's going on. I agree that we may underestimate how much support trainees need, perhaps particularly the capable ones, there are certain assumptions I think we make. For example, Nija is extremely capable, so it would be very easy to overlook some of the issues faced by working in isolation. Also, as John mentioned, any personal issues, which I think are quite common in our current situation. There's been a lot of help and resources being developed in response to COVID-19. From your perspective, do you have any personal recommendations um, where trainees or supervisors could seek additional support? The Professional Support Unit has lots of resources for trainees. We're still offering coaching, for example, and there are lots of resources on our website. In terms of supervisors, I think being in touch with your trainers group is a really good idea. Is something that's probably partly neglected at the moment. We, we're not thinking about meeting in person. So the idea of meeting at all can fall by the wayside rather. So I think talking to our fellow trainers, trying to instigate some form of virtual trainers meeting is very helpful. And John, any thoughts? 
in one respect, GP trainees are no different to GPs or anybody else that's working in the clinical role at the moment. And every day I seem to get a whole wealth of resources land in my inbox, mainly to do with personal well-being, mindfulness, ways of keeping ourselves well. Um, individual clinicians will choose the kind of thing that works for them. At the very end of the scale, there are organisations like PHP, which, if learners are getting into deep trouble, or even non-learners, are making themselves very accessible. Just changing the subject slightly, the RCGB has a wealth of resources also on its website. Rue was talking earlier about the ethical issues that come up in this. There is a formal set of ethical guidance issued by the RCGP about two weeks ago, which is really good. On their COVID website, there's all sorts of videos, including one by the famous Roger Neighbour on how to do remote consulting. Nerja, from a trainee's perspective. So there are a couple of things. Our VTS has now moved to Zoom meetings and the attendance is now very variable. And we found that actually that's because it's being done in the evening to allow hospital trainees to attend. But that means that parents who have young children aren't able to attend at the same time. So we are sometimes neglecting some of these groups and it's really important where possible to attend whatever VTS meeting is going on because it's important to keep in touch with your trainee group and see actually that the difficulties you're facing when working remotely, you're not facing alone and others are facing the same difficulties. And equally, they have solutions that you might not have thought of. So it is really important to share good practice I would also give trainees permission not to be overwhelmed with the resources that are available and not to feel that they have to engage in absolutely every well-being resource that's out there or every piece of new COVID information because your email inboxes will be full. Um, I was listening to a piece of information today talking about how trainees in particular are perfectionists generally and, and try and want to learn and actually that in itself can become an onerous task so give yourself permission not to know everything about everything I think that's okay in addition I'm part of a group which we've set up called the work well doctors and we're working with HE at the moment to try and do personalized VTS zoom sessions for GP trainees to make sure that if people have any issues then they can talk um, with one of us about those and then we can signpost them to where is most important for them to seek their help I have to thank everyone today. It's been a pleasure having you on board for this podcast and for you to share your experiences and thoughts around the area of remote supervision within primary care. Thank you all so much. This is Mira Kumar. She's an ST1 GP trainee in London and she does the RCGP Somewhere in Between AIT podcasts and she'll be telling us how she's found remote supervision during the pandemic. As an ST1, my trainer has been really, really supportive um, of me in my first six months of the job, where if I wasn't sure about a rash or just general communication about a specific thing that I may not have been too sure about, I could grab my supervisor, bring them into the room, and we could have a discussion then and there and make a plan. I think what the sort of recent pandemic has shown is that the supervisor has been absolutely amazing, but it's the logistics of all of that. We're doing so much more work over the phone, so much more work over video consultations, which makes it trickier to have that real-time supervisor input. And we're trying to find sort of workarounds to manage that as best as we can and as safely as we can.
telephone consultations are a part of primary care and I think varying practices had adopted it in different ways. In the practice that I worked in, it wasn't the mainstay of communication with patients. So I think it was initially sort of a stumbling block to try and find our feet with the patients and the patients to find their sort of comfort zone with us as well to discuss personal matters and things on the phone, which I always think can be quite difficult, but also when it's conversations surrounding advanced care planning or end of life care, trying to use the resources around us. So our local palliative care network, advice from the local hospice, but also there's some really good advice and resources out there on say the RCGP website. There are other websites that we sort of use to adopt our own clinical framework and policy within the GP surgery because we appreciated this was a whole new way of having discussions with people in what is a really anxious and sort of scared time. And I think the other thing that I have personally found challenging over the last few weeks is the number of calls we're having regarding mental health. I think it's just well recognized that it's a really stressful time for people, not only ones that are shielding or have other you know, health conditions, but others due to work difficulties or have lots of children and maybe not an outside space to be able to go out in. So we're finding that we are relying a lot on sort of the goodwill of neighbours and our community support system and using other members of staff such as our social prescriber and pharmacist to check in with patients more regularly just to make sure they're doing okay. So that's definitely been a progression over the last few weeks of, of our practice. With me is Noreen Bauti, who is the head of school in North Central and East London, who has a background in medical education for many years. And she'll be talking to us about education, supervision and GP training during the pandemic. We've got education back and I think that's really important. Even when it was suspended, I think our programme directors and our educational supervisors did Mm -hmm. a phenomenal job of continuing to support and supervise people at quite a difficult time. So even though they weren't running formal tutorials, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of trainees have fed back that they felt more supported than ever. The attendance at the virtual half-day release, it's usually been an hour or so support online in some format, has had more trainees attend a few minutes or whatever. And a lot of them have found that incredibly useful to talk to their peers about how it's going to have that support to save their queries and have somewhere to take those. What we're having, certainly in my practice, what I've seen is many more huddles, as we call them. So rather than a a weekly clinical meeting, we're literally having a huddle three times a week. And even those people who are in the practice were doing that on a virtual platform to allow social distancing and we've also had 50% of people admin and clinical in the building and 50% at home working from home remotely so everyone was joining virtually whether they were in the building or at home and it, it just felt very supportive and I think the camaraderie and the teamwork in managing new ways of working managing a new illness has been really helpful in terms of our trainees feeling supported and supervised so feedback has been good and you know I would like to know if anyone hasn't felt supported I mean, one of the other challenges that I must point out, of course, that's been really tough for a lot of trainees and a lot of our trainers and educators is the number of people that have had to protect themselves a little bit, not be able to be frontline and not be able to see patients and need shielding, maybe have to work at home and particularly the shielded, but even those who are pregnant or vulnerable for other reasons, not maybe as bad as the shielded group or needing as much protection as the shielded group, but still needing to be really careful about where they are. That's been pretty tough because we've had to look at ways that people can work at home get systems computers working at home and then also make sure that they are included 
And I think it's really important that our trainees, even if they can't see patients face-to-face, they are able in general practice to continue to train, continue to be supervised remotely, that they get guidance in that, and they continue to manage to gain their competences, continue to prepare for the exams this summer and, and qualify as GPs as best as they can. So thank you for tuning in to our episode today, which was on remote supervision in primary care. And it was brought to us by the multi-faculty development team um, based in the professional development unit. Thanks, Helen, Rue, John and Nevja for your comments today. Please join us for the next episode of PSU's Pandemic Podcasts.